You know, the gospel is rich. Uh, what we have is rich. Uh, not just the Bible. The Bible says that your word is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And whoever has a Bible is richer than a king. And the preacher's job is just to let you know what you have. But the real wealth isn't just in the Bible. The real wealth is in the one that the Bible points to. And Jesus said, these are the very scriptures that talk about me, that testify about me. And it is the Lord himself who is our greatest treasure. He is, he is our treasure. Uh, Jesus even said that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he was so excited that he hid it again so that nobody else would find it. And then he went and sold everything that he had. And it says that with joy, he sold everything that he had and he bought the field. And once he bought that field, he was unspeakably rich. And whether you know it or not, and whether you can pay your bills or not, and whether you're in good health or not, and whether everything is fine in your life or not, if you have Jesus Christ, you have a treasure that will never run out. And so this morning, I want to unfold a little bit uh, of that treasure for you. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17 is our text. And John 14, 15 through 17. And the title of my sermon this morning is Five Benefits to Being United to Jesus Christ by the Power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, that's a little bit long, but I'll just read it for you. <laughs> Five benefits of being united to Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when we come to believe in Jesus Christ, something extraordinary happens. And our hearts are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ. And that brings tremendous benefits. But we need to know what those benefits are. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. If you love me, keep my commands. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and He will be in you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we thank You for sending Your Son to shed His precious blood upon the cross for our sins and for our salvation. We thank You for bringing us under the hearing of the Gospel and giving us faith to believe. We thank You for helping us to persevere in the faith until we see You face to face. We thank You for sending Your Holy Spirit to take up residence within us and to seal our hearts. And I pray this morning, Lord Jesus Christ, that Your Word would, become, uh, would find its proper resting place within our hearts. That we might experience the joy that we ought to have, and that we might give you the glory that belongs to you. And so assist us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. What a day that was. You know, first they saw him crucified. And they found the tomb was empty. And then Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days. 
and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Do not leave Jerusalem, he said, but wait for the gift my father promised. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit came with such amazing power that something extraordinary happened, something that had never happened before. The Spirit, who had been with the disciples, took up actual residence within the disciples, exactly as Jesus taught. And did you know that to this very day, whenever somebody believes in Jesus Christ, the same thing happens. The same Spirit that took up residence within the disciples on the day of Pentecost takes up residence within the heart of every single person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, this is an extraordinary miracle that is unparalleled anywhere else in the world. It does not work for believers in the Buddha. You believe in the Buddha until the cows come home. But the Holy Spirit will not take up residence within you. You can believe in Muhammad until the sun burns out, but the Holy Spirit will not take up residence within you. You can do the same for Confucius, and you can do the same for Moses himself. But the moment that somebody believes in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within them and stays with them. And I think that that is just as remarkable when you consider the folks he chooses, like us. <laughs> and he stays with us. Not only that, but according to the Apostle Paul, it works both ways. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, then you are in Christ. I want you to keep those two little words in your mind. If, if the Spirit of Christ is in you, then you are in Christ. Not unlike the way that a letter is inside an envelope or an unborn baby is inside their mother. And this relationship is so important and was so important to the Apostle Paul that he mentions it no fewer than 80 times in his letter, in his letters. Eighty times, it's the most important thing that he wants to talk about is our union, the union that the believer has with Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are found in him. It's the closest possible relationship. He is in us, and we are in him. Five benefits. Number one, we have redemption. Ephesians 1, 7, 
He says, in him, that is in union with Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We don't use the word redemption very much outside of church, but it was in a broader currency back then. In fact, even today, if you look up the word redemption in the dictionary, it will say something like this. The action of regaining possession in exchange for a payment. Do you got it? If redemption is the action of regaining possession in exchange for a payment. A good example comes from the prophet Hosea. Maybe you know his story. He was having trouble at home. So bad, in fact, that his wife walked out on him, leaving him and three children behind. That's hard on, that's hard on the ministry. She didn't have much cash, and so she sold herself into slavery, including personal services. And the Lord said to the prophet Hosea, Go show your love to your wife again. Even though she is loved by another man, and even though she is an adulteress, but she was a slave. And so he had to buy her back. And so he bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. That was a lot of money. The prophets didn't make much money. And so it was probably everything that Hosea had and plus everything that he could borrow to get his adulterous wife back. But if you can imagine Hosea searching for his wife and finding her in the house of another man and paying big money to get her back, then you can imagine God finding you in your sins and paying the ultimate price to get you back. And the biblical word for this is redemption. Here's the point. Hosea gave all that he had to get his wife back. And that's what God did for his, for us rather. Hosea paid all that he had to get his wife back and that's what God did for us. The highest price that has ever been paid for anything was paid on a cross for you so that God could have you back. And because of that, we can never doubt God's love again because He proved it once and for all through sacrifice. Because did you know that love can only be proven through sacrifice? For example, if your father was a billionaire and he gave you everything that you asked for the moment that you asked for it, that would not prove that he loved you. All right, That would be nice, actually. But there's no proof there. But... But if you needed a kidney and he gave you one of his, you could never doubt his love again because he had proven it through sacrifice. See, love can only be proven through sacrifice. And the cross was the ultimate sacrifice. And so it would be a sin to ever doubt God's love again. See, we're kind of like 
the people. Do you know that little poem? You find a daisy and and you start to pick the petals of the daisy. And as you're picking the petals of the daisy, you're saying what? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. That's how some. That's the kind of relationship that some people think they have with God. But that's an insult to God. Because it would be a sin to ever doubt God's love again. Because He has proven it once and for all through sacrifice. Don't imagine that God's love for you is based upon whether or not all your prayers are being answered. And whether or not you're in good health. And whether or not your bills are paid. And whether or not uh, every, all your relationships are good. That has nothing to do with it. God showed you His love. He proved His love to you when He sent His Son to shed His blood upon the cross. And we dare not ever question it again. And so in Christ, we have redemption. And second, we have assurance. Romans 8, 1. I love this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you don't have to wait until Judgment Day to see how it's going to go on Judgment Day. All right? Because the moment that you believed in Jesus Christ, that sentence of condemnation was taken away because of Jesus Christ. After his arrest, Jesus was dragged into court and he was cross-examined by the authorities. And the high priest said, Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, Yes, it is as you say. And he could have left it there, but he didn't. He referred to Daniel chapter 7, which was known to everybody in that day. And this is what Jesus is referring to. He says, yes, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And that's how the only person who never sinned was condemned to death for the people that he came to save. In other words, Jesus, said, Jesus suffered the sentence of condemnation so that we will never have to. And isn't that a relief? There is now no condemnation because Jesus was condemned for us. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but one day after high school, or one day in high school, I was driving through an unfamiliar town and I had some friends in the car and after uh, going through an intersection... I was surprised to see flashing uh, lights in my rearview mirror. And so I pulled over to the side of the road and I was given a ticket for a stop sign I did not see. Rats. But then we talked among ourselves and it turned out that none of the people in the car had seen the stop sign either. And so we went back uh, to the intersection to see if it was actually there and it was in fact there. But as we looked at it, we figured out that uh, the police officer was actually driving a large SUV and he was parked directly in front of the stop sign, obstructing my view. Are you with me? You know what's going on? And so I went to court. 
And I pled my case. And the judge gave his verdict. Not guilty. But I have to admit that there was a moment when I did not know which way it would go. And that is a moment that we will never have to experience on Judgment Day because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus right now. No condemnation. And so, in Christ Jesus, we have assurance. And third, we have identity. Galatians 3.26, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. I love that word, all. Not some or most. In Christ Jesus, you are mostly children of God. In Christ Jesus, some of you are children of God. No, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. Not just the elders and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers. But the strugglers and the stragglers and the sinners and the addicts who truly believe in Jesus Christ are children of God. Because in Christ Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we have been taken out of the courtroom and we have been brought into the family room. And now God is our Heavenly Father. Romans 8.15 The Spirit you received uh, brought about your adoption and by Him we cry, Abba Father. Papa God. Because the Spirit of Christ unites us to Christ so that like Jesus Christ, we can call God Abba Father. Do you get that? You don't have that by nature. You don't have that by creation. You have that because of Jesus Christ. And that's why in John 17, Jesus could pray to the Father and He could say, you have loved these guys just as much as you love Me. Why? Because we're as good as Jesus? No, but because we're in Him. Your relationship with the Father depends a lot less on you than it does on Jesus Christ. You relate to the Father through Christ, not on your own. Don't go to God because you're a pretty good person. It won't work. Because He knows you're not a good person. But He also knows that in Christ, you have been made perfect forever, to quote Hebrews. In fact, the Apostle John picked up on this. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished, abundantly lavished is the word. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. You know, it's great to be an apostle. It's great to be a doctor. It's great to be a general. It's great to be a CEO. What are they compared to being a COG? Child of God is our core identity and John was so excited about that that he, that he quickly wrote, and that is what we are! Exclamation point! You know, John was 90 years old when he wrote this, but his greatest thrill, his greatest joy, his greatest pride, his greatest 
happiness wasn't in anything that he had accomplished or that he hoped to accomplish, but that Jesus Christ had made him a child of God. And that is what we are. When my daughter was small, I put her to bed one night and I said, Baby, you're a little slice of heaven. And the next day, her brother called her a goof. She said, No, I'm not. She said, Dad says, I'm a little slice of heaven. Because what your father says about you is more important than what anyone else says about you. And what your heavenly Father says about you is more important than what anyone else would say about you. And the God of heaven and earth calls you His child. And can I say that if you know that deep inside, it won't matter very much what anybody else says about you or even thinks about you. Because in Christ Jesus, you're a child of God. So in Christ, we have identity. And fourth, we have direction. Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, I did a little research and I found out that people are, it's not unusual for people who are lost to wander in circles. Did you know that? Come on, did you know that? No, it's true. You put somebody out in the wilderness and if they don't know what they are and they don't have a compass, 24 hours later, they're going to be kind of right back where they started. Because lost people go in circles. And did you know that apart from the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that's our natural tendency. It's just to live in circles. You'll remember when Israel came out of the, uh, Egypt, they began their journey to the Promised Land, which is a pretty straight line. But when they got up to the border of the Promised Land, they lost their nerve and they wanted to go back to Egypt. And so, in a kind of punishment that properly fit the crime, they wandered in the wilderness until all the adults were dead. See, they could have conquered the Promised Land! But they would have to die in the desert. They could have followed God, but they would have to wander aimlessly. And did you know that's exactly what life is like apart from Jesus Christ? There is no goal. There is no prize. There is no proper destination. And with their dying breath, people look back on their lives and they say, what was that all about? But we press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward. In Christ Jesus. What a comfort it is to know that we have a proper destination. You know, the CEO of a large corporation um, had an unusual uh, practice whenever he would interview for a new executive. As the interview was winding down, he would lean across the desk and he would say, so tell me, what is your mission in life? And very often, these capable executive types would begin to battle like fools. But one surprised him. You know, he said, my mission in life is to go to heaven when I die and help as many people get there as I can. 
That's a pretty good mission. That's a life well spent. Or as Jesus put it even more simply, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. If you do that, you'll be able to look back on your life, and what you'll see is a very straight line from earth to heaven. You know, humanly speaking, we tend to go from one thing to another to whatever comes next. But here we are taught to seek first the kingdom of God and let God take care of the rest. And I don't know, what do you think? Is that good advice? You know, college athlete loved both God and football, and he dreamed of playing in the NFL, and then he, not uncharacteristically, started putting football ahead of God until eventually football took the place of God, and then one day he blew out of his knee and his football career was over, and so he started seeking first the kingdom of God again because everything else is simply a diversion that will mock us in the end. You won't be thankful for the excursions. When it comes to dying, you'll be thankful that you kept your eyes on Christ and just kept putting one foot in front of the other. And so in Christ we have direction, and fifth, finally, we have eternal life. You don't have to have anything now. Because you'll have it then. We'll have the best of all possible worlds and forever to enjoy it. If you had everything in the world and a thousand years to live, it would not be enough. You know why? Because you're made for more. And you will have it. Don't underestimate heaven. Uh, I call it the best of all possible worlds because there's streets of gold. And when you get streets of gold, that's as good as it gets, okay? It's, everything else will be there as well. And so in Christ Jesus, we have eternal life. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is... Go ahead. The wages of sin is... But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus. There it is. Not in atheism. Not in Buddhism. Not in secularism. Not in consumerism. Only in Jesus Christ do we have eternal life. And yet, maybe your experience is different. I'll just speak of my own. I've done a few of these, but I've never been to a funeral where the dead person was not assumed to be in heaven. No matter what they had done, no matter how they had lived, no matter what they had believed, they died. Therefore, they're in heaven. And this is so widely assumed that it seems that it sounds right. Even the people like us, they died. Therefore, they're in heaven. No, they're not. That is not the biblical view. And that is not Jesus' view. Wide is the gate. Broad is the road. That leads to destruction. And many, we could say most, go in there. But small is the gate. And narrow the way that leads to life. And only a what? Few. Find it. Now if I've shaken your confidence, let me give it back again. 
from John 10.9, Jesus speaking, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. One gate. One way. One name under heaven by which we must be saved. And we dare not put it off. When I was a child, I climbed up a bolt lift. We lived across the street from my grandparents, and they had a pier, and my uncle had a boat, and he had a bolt lift. And my grandpa had inner tubes in the garage, big ones. And so I climbed up the bolt lift, and I jumped belly first into the inner tube that was on the water. And to my surprise, I found myself wedged uh, so tightly inside the inner tube that I couldn't, couldn't move. And uh, even worse, my, my face was pressed so tightly against the rubber that I wasn't able to breathe. And my friends were all around, and it was a sur surreal experience because my friends were all around, and I could hear them playing, but they were oblivious to the fact that I was suffocating. I didn't expect to die today, I thought. I'm only nine years old. And so I prayed to the Lord, and somehow I got free, but it was a pretty close call. And I wonder about you. Have you ever had a pretty close call? Take heart. Whatever does not kill you merely postpones the inevitable. The sky turned dark from noon until three as the light of the world was being put out. And when the time had come, he said, It is finished. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Then they took him down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. But the tomb couldn't hold him and three days later he rose from the dead. The most important event in the history of the world. But why? Why? Why did it happen? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And what a difference that makes. You may die of sickness, but you'll wake up to hell You may die in poverty, but you'll wake up to wealth. You may die of stress, but you'll wake up to peace. You may die of sorrow, but you'll wake up to joy. You may die alone, but you'll wake up to friends. You may die in weakness, 
but you'll wake up to strength. You may die disgraced, but you'll wake up to honor. You may die in pain, but you'll wake up to pleasure. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ.